Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. We're delighted to have Dr. Meyer with us today, and in a moment you will hear about her. I wanted to make a few quick announcements first. In order to get your CME credits for today's talk, the code is small e, small m, three and small n. So I just remind you of that, and I think it's posted over there. A couple other quick announcements. The Adult Schwartz Center rounds are today, at, and it's at lunchtime in Auditorium G. All DHMC physicians and staff are invited to participate in this multidisciplinary exploration to improve relationship and understanding between patients and caregivers. And this month's panel presenters are James Laudate from Hospital Medicine and Donna Soltura from the Palliative Care uh, Division. They're going to explore the topic of sudden death in the tertiary medical center, providing compassionate care as loved ones move through the phases of loss. Lunch is available for attendees starting at 11.45. There's that. And this Sunday at 2.30, the Enfield Shaker Bridge Theater is doing Love Alone. It's an interesting play about an unfortunate um, problem that went wrong during minor surgery, the patient died, and it's the relationships that happen between the family members and then the physician's family. There will be a discussion afterwards of a number of you joining me on a panel in the room uh, at, with the cast, and so I call your attention to this play and spread the word about that particular matinee performance. Without further ado, I'd like to ask Kathy Kirkland to come and tell us about Diane Meyer. Kathy is a professor of medicine. She's the section chief of palliative medicine here. She does so much for our institution, but today she's going to tell us about Dr. Meyer. Thanks, Rich. Good morning. It's interesting to hear all that talk about death so early in the morning, and it just reminds me that we're not all about death in palliative care. We're about living, living well. Um, it's a great pleasure to introduce Diane Meyer um, to you today, who is a professor of medicine and geriatrics at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and the director of the Center to Advance Palliative Care, which is a national organization that's committed to increasing access to quality palliative care for serious, seriously ill patients and their families. I first encountered um, Diane and um, before I even made the transition to palliative care, when I was thumbing through one of the Oberlin magazine, uh, I think it was the summer issue of 2011, and I saw this uh, article, The Doctor Versus the Death Panels, and that was about Diane. And I th it's interesting, my older son went to Oberlin, and I remember that what they say to incoming students is, think one person can change the world, so do we. And I think, as I think about Diane and I, um, all that she's contributed to the um, field of palliative care, I really think that that question, that that question must have sort of embedded itself in your heart and that you really have been someone who's led real change in the world. Um, and it wasn't surprising to me to see that you had been honor honored with an honorary degree at Oberlin um, soon after or right before that article was written. Diane's really been a pioneer in palliative care. She's led clinical program development. She's built educational and research programs. She's um, ensured uh, measure, measurement has been embedded in palliative care growth and that we're measuring what matters. And she's been a tireless advocate for the need for better care for all patients with serious illness. I could... Um, it was no surprise that her CV is literally packed with accomplishments, awards, publications, and contributions to the world. I just want to highlight one particular award that she got because it stands out from most of the um, Grand Round speakers that we, we have here. She actually won a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship in 2008, and those are the No Strings Attached awards that really recognized 
genius, and I think um, we have one in our midst. I just want to read from their um, description of who they recognize, that the awards celebrate extraordinarily creative individuals who inspire new heights in human achievement. With their boldness, courage, and uncommon energy, these fellows exemplify the boundless nature of the human mind and spirit. She used this award to become a policy fellow in Washington, D.C., and really has spent the last period of her career advocating for the field of palliative care and to try to bring better, more effective, and wanted care to all patients with serious illness. I'm looking forward to seeing what's next for Diane, and I'm with no further ado, I'm delighted to bring her up here to tell us. Thanks, Diane. Thank you, Kathy, for that very kind introduction. Good morning, everybody. It's really a pleasure to be here. The sky is so beautiful here this morning. Um, so uh, what I'm going to be talking about is not about the specialty of palliative medicine, but about an approach to care of people with complex, serious illness that palliative medicine, I would say, is at the vanguard of naming and drawing attention to, but which urgently needs to inform all of our work whether we're general internists or ED docs or intensivists or cardiologists or oncologists or nursing home clinicians or home care clinicians. And it's very different from the way we were all trained. Um, so it requires a sort of a conscious shift. I have no conflicts to report. The objectives today are the case for integrating the principles and practices of palliative care into treatment of serious, all serious illness, all ages, all stages. And I'll review with you a small fraction of the science supporting this approach to patient care. Um, I'm sure you are all familiar with slides like this that highlight the con extreme concentration of risk and spending in healthcare. That 95% of the American population spends about 40% of total healthcare spending, and 5%, a very small fraction of the population, what we tend to think of as outliers, are actually driving the great majority of spending. Right. So 1% of uh, the, the U.S. population accounts for more than 20% of all spending and 5% to 50%. depends on which patient population you're looking at. In Medicare, it's a 5%, 65%. In Medicaid, it's roughly the same. In commercial populations, um, it's 5% driving maybe 40%. So depending on the patient population you're looking at. But the principle remains that a very relatively small number of people not surprisingly, the sickest people drive the most spending. Now, when you think about these data, you'll note that your reflexive reaction is to think, why are we wasting so much money on, on care of the sick? And I want you to pause when you think that way, because who else should we be spending money on? We shouldn't be spending you know, $100,000 a year on healthy people. Um, the question is not, is it appropriate to spend money on the sickest and most complex? Of course it is. That's why we're here. The question is, how are we spending that money? And is it meeting goals that are meaningful to that patient, that family, and to our society? So it's not, I don't want it to be about waste. It's about allocation and approach to meeting the needs of these people. Hmm. Doesn't seem to want to move. Let's try this. If you click on the slide, it'll. Ah, okay, there. Let's try that. Okay. So um, it wasn't until I got to Washington in 2009, at the ripe old age of whatever I was, 58 or 59, um, when I heard the term the value equation, which is kind of amazing since I've been in academic medicine my entire life in my little silo. Um, I had never heard of this. Yet this is the principle driving all thinking about healthcare policy in the United States. 
states. And it sounds complicated, but it's actually very simple, quality in the numerator, cost in the denominator. So somebody give me an example of the highest value medical intervention in human history. Clean water. Okay. So separating sewage from drinking water, which occurred in the late 19th and early 20th century, led to a 30-year gain in life expectancy. That dwarfs subsequent life expectancy gains associated with antibiotics and what we do in our towers here. The simplest least expensive intervention has saved hundreds of millions of lives. That's high-value medical care, public health, vaccination, prevention, smoking cessation, exercise, um, the areas that we invest the least in in our society. So somebody give me an example of a very low-value intervention, one that not only does not improve quality or quality of life, actually causes suffering, may shorten life at enormous cost. Like where to begin. <laughs> so there was an article by Joan Tino in JAMA Internal Medicine two months ago that showed that the prevalence of end-stage dementia people receiving intubation and ICU care in the United States is actually increasing in the last 10 years. Increasing. And what's the correlate? More ICU beds. Why are hospitals building more ICU beds? It's by far the highest reimbursed setting of care under the Medicare DRG. If a patient has a tracheotomy, you jump from $6,000 for that admission to $25,000 for that admission. In fact, on our palliative care team some years ago, we were influencing decisions about tracheotomy. We were in, families were deciding not to pursue tracheotomy in people who were never going to recover cognitively, and we got told to stop doing that because they, they, you know, they needed the eggs. So financial incentives are very pernicious and very powerful in driving, and it's unconscious, I think, at many levels among those of us in medicine. But uh, the data are disturbing in terms of what drives low-value care, and it is how we pay for care. So why am I talking about that? I'm talking about that because first I showed you the extreme concentration of risk and spending. I will show you data on the impact of various palliative care interventions on both improving quality and reducing costs, thus improving value. Um, and since we're talking about the small population that drives most spending, and since palliative care improves value for that population, it is a critical core part of the solution to addressing the mess we find ourselves in now. So this is an actual patient of mine. Um, Mr. B, this is a photo that uh, they, his daughter sent me with their permission on their 60th wedding anniversary, which occurred about six months after I initially met him in the emergency department. You can see that Mrs. B makes all her own clothing and <laughs> always makes a matching tie. For Mr. B, she is... You know, she's probably the reason he's still with us, but she is a pistol. Um, and um, when I met him three years ago, he was 88. I happened to be the attending on the palliative care service that day, and I was late as usual because I never get out on time. So at 6 o'clock, they called the beeper, and me and the medical student went downstairs. The ED attending happened to have been a third-year medical student rotating with us on palliative care some years earlier. Um, and that's why we got called for this man. It was an 88-year-old with dementia and low back pain. Right. Not dying, no major serious illness, just disabling spasm in the lumbosacral spine. Um, he described his pain as extreme. His wife gave it an 8 out of 10. And per his primary care doctor, a cardiologist in practice on the Upper East Side, he was taking extra-strength Tylenol. So much extra-strength Tylenol, in fact, that he was lucky not to have necrosed his liver. But he just kept popping it because it wasn't working and he didn't know it could be dangerous. As it turned out, this was his fourth ED admission. 
in the prior three months. And on the prior three ED admissions, he was sent upstairs because nobody in the ED knew what to do about excruciating low back pain in an 88-year-old demented patient who could not take anti-inflammatory drugs because of renal insufficiency and for whom acetaminophen wasn't touching him. And God forbid anyone should try him on an opioid because you would never use an opioid in a frail, elderly, demented patient at risk for falls and confusion. Instead, we admitted him three times. Um, and what happened, you can imagine what happened during those hospitalizations. So on one of them, uh, a, an, a urethral catheter was placed in the ED, as we used to do routinely, and everybody no longer, but at the time we did. So he, of course, developed a UTI, and he, of course, developed urosepsis with major functional decline, development of both urinary and fecal incontinence, delirium, um, worsening cognitive status, marked decline in functional status. It was a miracle we didn't kill him. Um, each time he was sent home from the hospital with home care, certified home health agency. Who here knows what the criteria are for getting care from Medicare home care? Sorry? You need to be homebound. You need to be homebound. What else? You have to have a skilled need, meaning if you just need hovering or someone to help you bathe, you're just out of luck, right? So you have to have like a wound care need or learning to do insulin or a PTOT need or a speech need. And how are home care agencies paid? By episode. By episode. So what's their financial incentive? Discharge you as quickly as possible. The more, the quicker they discharge you and the less they do, the more money they make. Okay, so each time he was discharged home, he'd get home care for a week or two, and then he'd be discharged. And then there was nobody other than his primary doc available. So here's what happened. We got to see him. He was lying all curled up in a ball with a knitted brow, refusing to open his eyes, refusing to answer questions, um, and saying, get me out of here, and was absolutely furious at his wife for calling 911 in the first place. And here's what happened. It was after dinner. Um, he had gotten up to go to the bathroom, sat down on the toilet, tried to get up, got back spasm, couldn't get up. I don't know how many, many of you are too young to have experienced this, but um, one day I turned this way in the shower to get the shampoo and my back went out, like I, I couldn't move. It's really disabling when it happens, and until you've experienced it, you won't understand it. But um, here is an 88-year-old who couldn't stand up with his 83-year-old wife trying to pull him up which he was just screaming at her, leave me alone, leave me alone. Her daughter lives, of course, in California. Um, and the, no neighbors were home because it was only about 5.45. So everyone was still at work or getting home from work. And there was no doorman in their building. In New York, doormen do a lot of elder care. Um, but there wasn't one in their building. They're over like at 92nd in York, somewhere way east. Um, so she called the primary doc. It was 6 o'clock. What did she get? She got a tape. And the tape said, if this is a medical emergency, hang up now and call 911. I suggest you all call your primary doctor at 5.45 p.m. and see what you get. You get a tape. It's a medical legal thing. Everyone does it, right? So you're... 88-year-old husband is screaming in pain and can't move. You can't reach the doctor. You can't get any help. She called 911. Everyone, basically, when I got the call from the ED attending, the language was, this couple is abusing the emergency room for low back pain. Have you ever heard that phrase? <laughs> Who's abusing the emergency room? The system is perfectly designed to achieve this outcome. <laughs> it is not the fault of the patient. It is not even the fault of the primary care doc. There is no reimbursement or infrastructure to support the care that people like this need. Right. And I just want to point out to you that not only was he not dying then, but he's still here now at age 91. So this is not an end-of-life care issue, although he's certainly in the last years of his life. But he is not predictably dying. 
if you're predictably dying, you get hospice, and then you wouldn't have this problem. But he's not eligible. So as she said, it was the only thing I could do, and in fact it was. So um, the before and after. So before we met him, he had four 911 calls, four ED visits, three hospitalizations leading to a hospital-acquired infection, sepsis, delirium, etc. Marked functional and cognitive decline and enormous wearing on his wife who was depressed and not eating and not sleeping and not wanting to tell her daughter what was going on because she didn't want to worry her. Ever heard that before? <laughs> so um, me and my medical student went down there and having reviewed the chart and talked to Mrs. B and um, tried to reach the community attending but couldn't, I gave him 0.5 milligrams of liquid oral morphine and stood there at the, bed, at the stretcher. What was I worried about in giving an 88-year-old demented patient who was frail morphine? Delirium. I was wor worried about worsening mental status, although it would be hard for it to get any worse than it was at that moment, which was eyes shut, tightly closed, refusing to communicate um, at all. What else was I worried about? He would need more that he might need more and what might be a consequence of that. More delirium, falls, dizziness, um, respiratory depression, right? Everyone's worried about that in opioid-naive patients, right? So I stood there with a student for 45 minutes and it absolutely didn't touch him. Now, just so you know, 0.5 milligrams of concentrated morphine is 10% of the initial starting dose we would give one of you. So talk about a conservative approach to geriatric care, too conservative. So I then, 45 minutes later, gave him one milligram. So the total was 1.5 milligrams within an hour. And 20 minutes later, he was a different person. He was flirting with the nurses, which is the way he is, and holding his wife's hand and smiling and asked to go to the bathroom and was able to walk to the bathroom with a nurse walking with him. And so did I just send him home then? Yeah, but not until the student and I spent an hour with Mrs. B teaching her about the safe and effective use of these drugs, teaching her how to draw it up in a 1cc syringe and making sure she had the vision and fine motor coordination to actually be able to do that. And we practiced it enough times that both she and we were convinced she was safe. We used a black magic marker to mark how much to pull up. And most important of all, um, I had sent the med student across the street to get these prescriptions. He also got a big container of Miralax, <laughs> you know, which is that powder, polyethylene glycol powder. And she practiced mixing up a scoop of that and eight ounces of water until it was second nature. And until she could say back to us, she knew she had to give that to him every day whether he needed it or not because you never prescribe an opioid without a preventative laxative prescription. Um, hopefully everyone in this audience knows that. I'm afraid that 95% of physicians don't know that. Um, and having lost one patient from um, sterchoral ulceration, from fecal impaction because of failure to prevent severe constipation, um, I'm paranoid about it now. So, all right, so the other thing we did was I realized that sending somebody this fragile home and expecting that his office clinician could manage this, who, by the way, had never made a home visit, um, was unsafe. So I called my colleagues in the house calls practice. Ours is called visiting docs, um, but it's actually visiting nurses, visiting nurse practitioners, visiting social workers, visiting chaplains, lots of visiting med students and residents, and visiting docs. And because I'm, I've been around for a while and I know everybody, I had the cell phone number of the director of the practice, and I called her and I said, um, Linda, I'm about to send an 88-year-old demented patient home on opioids. Can you see him tomorrow morning? 
and they always prioritize palliative care patients and probably they they do what I ask, which is so it's not a fair a fair example. Um, but you can see it's feasible. So they went into the apartment. We sent them home in a taxi at 10 o'clock. And the visiting docs arrived at 9 o'clock the next morning where they found a geriatric disaster waiting to happen. It was a miracle he had not fractured his hip. Loose throw rugs everywhere, electrical wires crisscrossing the floor, shoes, things to trip on all over the place. Mrs. B was just not keeping up because his needs were so high. They, they did the refrigerator biopsy. The only food in the refrigerator was old Chinese food. Why? She couldn't go out grocery shopping because she couldn't leave him alone because he would get agitated and try to follow her, but he couldn't go with her because of his back. His mobility was really limited. So the only menu she had was the local Chinese restaurant. She didn't have a computer, so she didn't know from Fresh Direct or ordering online and, of course, didn't want to tell their daughter because they didn't want to worry her. So that's what they were eating, like leftover Chinese food. Um, the, there was no grab bar in the bathroom, there was no elevated toilet seat, and the only seats in the living room were those, you know, kind of 1950s, very low armchairs and couches that you and I would have trouble getting out of. That's what they had. So basically the environment was precipitating the back spasm. Yet three um, certified home health agency teams had not addressed these issues. I don't know why, but they hadn't. So house calls referral, pain management, bowel management. House calls team has 24-7 meaningful phone coverage. When you call, you get a call back within 10 minutes, and they measure themselves on that. If you wait longer than 10 minutes and someone's in excruciating pain or can't breathe, they will call 911. So you have to spend money on coverage. It means your FTE goes up. Okay. The support for the caregiver. So it turned out that their friends were all members of their local church. And they, for the same reason, had not been going to church. Um, it was only two blocks away, but it was too far. And as it turned out, with their permission, when we called the pastor, the pastor had come in at the same time they stopped going. So they fell through the cracks. And he was very embarrassed. And of course, their church, like almost every faith community, has a friendly visitor program for shut-ins, which had not been activated. And now they send three people, Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays, to hang out with Mr. B and give Mrs. B a break. She can go out, she can go shopping, she can see her friends. And they send a car to pick them up on Sunday mornings, take them to services, give them lunch, and take them home. I think of all the things that we did, that intervention was the most powerful and the most important. Um, Meals on Wheels, with their permission, we talked to the daughter. She now orders groceries online every week for them, and she visits a lot more often. That was three years ago. He has not once been back. So remember we talked about the value equation. Which one of these columns is higher quality? Which one of these columns is much lower cost? Which one is easier to get? Okay. This story concentrates and exemplifies the shifts the health care system must accomplish if we are not to go bankrupt on health care spending. It's a matter of will, political will largely, and the willingness of health systems to be disrupted. So instead of spending money on yet another ICU, we spend money on creating capacity in the community to take care of people. Um, and the payment system has to be aligned with that, obviously, um, or it's not going to happen. All right, so is Mr. B's experience atypical? No, unfortunately, it's very typical. 75% of Medicare beneficiaries are in an ED at least once in the last six months of life. It is the modern death ritual. You can't die without first passing through the ED. <laughs> and if you have dementia, the ICU. 
Um, so now it's time for a quiz to wake you up. Among the costliest 5% of patients, remember I said they account for roughly 50% or more of all healthcare spending. What fraction of that pie, the costliest 5%, do you guys estimate are in the last 12 months, not six months, but last 12 months of life? Guesses. 80. 80? 75. 75? Anybody else? Eleven percent. So why does everybody think it's so high? Because the data we look at looks at individual spending in retrospect from death. And for a given individual, spending goes up in the last six months of life. But at a population basis, it's only eleven percent. And this is last 12 months, and we have no idea who's within 12 months of death. So you, it's, you can't even act, it's not actionable until someone's really close to death. So prognosis is not particularly actionable in terms of identifying people at risk. Half of the costliest 5% are people who benefit. Cabbage, total hip replacement, um, cancer surgery, um, all the stuff we do that does good that's very expensive, but those people regress back to the mean in the subsequent year. So they are one-time high spenders, they benefit. This is good spending. Okay, so that's about 2.5% of the total. The remaining 40% are the Mr. B's of our society. They are mostly old, they are mostly functionally impaired, they mostly have some cognitive impairment, they have multimorbidity, they have high level of family caregiver dependency. Those two groups, the blue and the green, are the ones that are very ill-served by the current system. And where, as Mr. B experienced, the current system does harm at enormous cost. The red half, those are the lucky ones, you know. That's hopefully us if we get something serious. So who is this group? Most but not all are over 65. In fact, some of the highest per capita spending is under the age of one in the United States. Um, cognitive impairment, frailty, exhausted, overwhelmed family caregivers, social and behavioral challenges, so the social isolation, the lack of food, the lack of transportation, the lack of family support, huge contributors to what happened to Mr. B. Um, he, he didn't really have a serious illness unless you call frailty and mild cognitive impairment or moderate cognitive impairment a serious illness. So is, his, is he atypical? No. The costliest 5% of Medicare beneficiaries, two-thirds are functionally impaired. Okay. If you had to use a single predictor to identify these high-need, high-cost individuals, it would be functional status. Are you required to enter functional status on your EHR? Even at Dartmouth, you're not doing that. <laughs> if Dartmouth is not doing it, hello. It's more important than their phone number in identifying the people who are going to need more services. This is a study from University of Indiana um, in which they compared healthcare utilization in community-dwelling Medicare beneficiaries with and without dementia. So comparable except for the presence of dementia, and you can see for yourself, the massive increase in utilization of all types, hospital, skilled nursing facility, nursing home use, home health use, burdensome transitions among people with dementia as compared to match controls without dementia. Now why would that be? What is it about dementia per se that causes such a high utilization? Nothing, it's the family caregiver exhaustion. When the family caregiver has no alternative but to call 911 and send their husband to subacute rehab, which gets paid very generously so they can breathe, that is what they will do. <coughs> it's logical. Why do we do this? And these are data comparing the ratio of social to healthcare spending in the United States as compared to the other nations in the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which are other developed, in quotes, nations. So for example, you can see that in Denmark, Sweden, Germany, Italy, UK, Luxembourg, Poland, they spend about $2.50 on social supports for every dollar they spend on medical care. 
And then three guesses, which country is us? <laughs> That's why Mr. B ends up in the ED in the hospital over and over and over. If you have, if you go to Poland or Sweden or other developed countries, they've got teams of nurses that know every frail older person in their region and are constantly checking on them. Better care, much lower cost. We don't pay for that here. So people use the only, use the way the system is designed. So um, this reminds me of a quote from um, Churchill in which he said, you can always trust Americans to do the right thing, but only after they try everything else first. <laughs> It has more resonance now. Um, so it used to be when I came up that you could not get Medicaid for long-term care unless you were in a nursing home. So people who did not need to be in a nursing home went into a nursing home in order to get Medicaid coverage for long-term care. And obviously the policymakers thought that would reduce the use of Medicaid because no one wants to go to a nursing home. Um, instead, of course, in desperation, lots of people went who didn't need to go. And then finally, about 10 years ago, there was a rebalancing of Medicaid spending away from institutions and into community, home and community-based services in long-term care. And in a study, and obviously that's what people want. I don't know anybody who wants to go into a nursing home if they can avoid it. Um, so not only is it better quality and concordant with what people want, it costs less than one-third the cost of putting people in institutional care. So we're getting there. Um, and this was a study from Health Affairs a couple years ago. Uh, I don't know if you guys know how Meals on Wheels is funded. Anybody know? Okay. So a fraction of it is federal. Um, some of it is state, and if your state has budget problems, it goes down. And some of it is volunteer, so a lot of the work is volunteer. The people who deliver the meals are often volunteer. In Detroit, the waiting list for Meals on Wheels is eight months. Okay, So it's not reliable. So guess what happened to the Meals on Wheels budget during the sequester? Dropped by 50%, not restored. So only in America can you get an LVAD, but not dinner. <laughs> so anyway, what this study showed was that a tiny increase in Meals on Wheels spending would markedly reduce utilization. And in fact, food insecurity is a major driver of disease and utilization. So finally, I'm getting to our topic here. What is, what is palliative care? So it's specialized team-based care for people with serious illness, um, although I'm going to take specialized out of this slide because this is an approach that everyone should use. It's focused on quality of life, and that could be spiritual, psychological, physical, social, family, any domain. It's provided by a team. The minimum team is chaplain, social work, nursing, medicine, but often includes people like family, life therapists, art therapists, massage therapists, music therapists, etc., who work with patients and families and the rest of the team to provide an added layer of support. And that is my elevator speech about palliative care. It's an added layer of support. It's not what we do when there's nothing more that we can do. It's what we do at the same time as everything else we can do. All the disease-specific treatment is important and needed, but it's not sufficient to take care of seriously ill people. Appropriate at any age, any diagnosis, any stage, and at the same time as curative treatment. Um, and I'll just tell you one story about one of our residents, Christina, who finished her residency two years ago, um, pregnant, delivered her baby in late July. Two weeks later, couldn't breathe, short of breath. Her assumption was that she had had a PE. She went to see her primary care doc. He did a chest X-ray. She said the moment he walked into the exam room, she knew she had cancer just from looking at his face. And she had a massive mediastinal lymphoma. You know, three-week-old baby at home. Went to Memorial Sloan Kettering, which has somebody who was very expert in that particular type of lymphoma, very nice guy, very competent, um, brilliant guy. And so she met with him, and he asked her if she had any questions. 
And she said, well, I assume you have palliative care as part of your team. And what do you think he said? He said, you don't need that. You're not dying. <laughs> and she told him, I'm not going through this that was bone marrow transplant. Very difficult treatment um, without the support of a palliative care team, having trained at Sinai and worked side by side with palliative care teams through her whole training, plus she did two months on visiting docs. So she knew what the capability was. And they couldn't provide that at Man's Greatest Cancer Hospital. <laughs> so she had to get it from us. And she's, I talked to her yesterday, she's um, 18 months out from treatment and all her PET scans are negative and her baby's doing well. Um, and she testified in front of Congress with us about, so she was going for cure and palliative care, she will tell you, was critical to getting through this devastating experience. So it's not this, it's not life prolonging care today and tomorrow, oops hospice. It's this. It's both and. And the sine wave is probably more accurate of what happens to people. Crisis, stable, crisis, stable, crisis, stable. Um, the data, and I can't show it all to you because there's so much of it now, um, the numerator, quality, these are all things that have been shown to improve in multiple studies of palliative care, including in five randomized controlled clinical trials, survival. Four of those are in cancer, one of those is in end-stage lung disease. And we're pending a study in end-stage heart failure. Um, and as a consequence of improving quality, think about Mr. B, much lower utilization. It is not rationing. It is not a consolation prize because we're taking away the best medicine. It is better care that averts crises and averts unnecessary and burdensome, quote, treatment. I'm not going to call it care because it's not. So whenever someone says unnecessary care, I stop them. If it's care, it's not unnecessary. If it's unnecessary, it's not care. So this is the RCT that was published in the New England Journal in 2011 from Mass General. This was a randomized controlled clinical trial of people with newly diagnosed stage three and four non-small cell lung cancer who were randomly assigned to best cancer care, which is very good at Mass General. They have probably the best lung cancer program in the world or at least they used to. And then people got that plus palliative care in the intervention group. No surprise, better quality of life, 80% reduction in major depression, reduced use of chemo in the last few weeks of life, reduced hospitalization, more hospice, but, and this was a secondary outcome because they didn't think that it would have any impact on survival. There was a highly significant gain in survival of 2.7 months. Now, if this had been a drug, I'd be rich. A 2.7 month gain in survival, that's a lot in stage three and four incurable lung cancer, but it was palliative care, so I'm not rich. No drug company is selling it. Um, and there are now other studies supporting this. And I think this, so this was what, 2010 actually, so it's seven years later. And now it's recommended by ASCO and other standard-setting organizations, including the Commission on Cancer, that anybody, and so far they're focusing on incurable cancer, so Christina wouldn't have been eligible, um, that people get simultaneous palliative care along with cancer care. This is a randomized controlled trial published in JAGS about 10 years ago, randomly assigning people with COPD, CHF, and cancer on discharge from the hospital to standard home care, which we already described the limitations of that, versus home-based palliative care, which didn't have to be require skilled need, didn't require that you be homebound, and wasn't episode-based. Um, so you could visit a lot if someone was in crisis or be available by phone if someone was stable. And what you can see here is a tripling in the number of home visits in the palliative care group in blue. So if you were running a home care agency, you'd say, well, that's nice. I'm sure the patients appreciated that, but who's going to pay for that? But it was Kaiser 
so they could see their spending across every silo, which plummeted everywhere else. Why? Because like Mr. B, needs were being met. So 50% drop in physician office visits, ER visits, 80% drop in hospital days, 80% drop in skilled nursing facility days, four to one return on investment. So Kaiser's doing this across its whole book of business, and what's the only other rational healthcare system in the US? The VA is doing this in their home-based primary care across their whole book of business, because they're doing what's best for their patients in the most efficient way possible. Everywhere else, we can't get paid for this, so we don't do it. There are now a bunch of accountable care organizations that have linked their ability to share in savings and reduce their risk to embedded palliative care capacity. And here's one example from Sharp Health System, which is in, I think, Southern California. Their program is called Transition. So these were people who were identified at discharge. Um, the blue group is, then this is a pre-post study. Um, basically, they went into the home like with Mr. and Mrs. B, assessed home safety, assessed family caregiver capacity, taught families to manage predictable crises, stayed much more intensively involved for about a month, then reduced the frequency of visits, then went to telephone support. So it wasn't the same high level. Then if people got better, they were sent back to their primary care doc, they were discharged. If they got worse, they moved to hospice. And you can see the reduction in ED visits and admissions associated with that. And this is consistent with all the other studies. So nursing home, um, everyone in the nursing home needs palliative care. Everyone. It should be the standard of practice. It should be a regulatory and accreditation requirement. The, these data were published last year in JAGS. This was a study of 46 Rhode Island and North Carolina nursing homes, a propensity score matched retrospective cohort study. And basically, they looked at the number of days between the palliative care consult and death and the likelihood of hospitalization in the last week of life. And the green is with palliative care consult consultation, the red is without, and you can see this huge drop in likelihood of hospitalization, especially if the consult occurred more than two months before death, at which the rate of hospitalization dropped to 7%, one quarter or one third of the rate um, without it. Um, and good news, at least before two weeks ago, nursing homes are now going to be penalized for readmissions financially. So that is an economic driver for these kinds of models for nursing homes. There was no economic driver before. Nursing homes were actually financially incented to send people to the hospital because when they came back, they got back on the Medicare-funded skilled nursing facility benefit, which was much better reimbursed than the long-term care day. So that's going away. This is a systematic review of 46 high-quality studies, most of which were US studies showing a very consistent impact on spending. What are the five, if you're trying to do this, what are the five absolutely essential characteristics without which you will fail? They are targeting population health management approach. If you tried to bring these services to Mrs. B, you would be spending a lot of money with no benefit. She doesn't need it. And this is the trickiest part, actually, is identifying who these people are, matching, risk stratifying them and matching services to needs. And this is something most health systems have not yet figured out because it requires money. It requires investment. Um, asking people what matters most to them, not what their goals are. That's a meaningless question. But what matters most to them? Support the family, address social determinants. None of this is going to work if families are depressed, miserable, can't work, uh, can't take care of their kids, they will institutionalize in those situations. Expert pain and symptom management. I was the first among, I counted, 60 doctors who saw Mr. B that tried him on a low-dose opioid. The alternative, people thought it was safer to send him to the hospital. They felt it was safer than trying opioids because no one was trained about the safe and effective use of opioids, even in vulnerable, demented, frail, high fall risk people. Um, and that's a training failure on the part of our, our health system. So that expertise is critical. 
if you're doing population health management. And last but not least, meaningful 24-7 access, which costs money. The ability to call back within 10 minutes is critical to reducing 911 calls. Goal setting. So when I'm teaching the students, this is what I teach them to say. I have never once had anybody answer me, I want to live forever. I suggest you try this. Keep score. People want to see their garden come up. People want to get home. People want to be with their family. They want to see their grandchild graduate high school. They want to reduce the burden on their families. People want things that are achievable. We're the ones who think that bodily immortality is what they want. And that's what we offer. And people think, well, the doctor must know what's best, so sure, I want that. For the most part. For the most part. So this is a great study that Terry Freed at Yale did a few years ago. It was a survey of senior center participants, so they weren't demented, so they're different than Mr. B, for example. But they were asked to choose among uh, living longer, relief from pain and symptoms, or remaining independent in terms of what was most important to them. What's your guess? Followed by relief from suffering and dead last, living longer. How is the healthcare system designed? What are we doing this for? Aren't we here to serve our patients? Where did we lose our way here? Obviously, the people in the 50% of the high spenders who benefit, I'm excluding that group. They're benefiting. It's good care. But when we apply that same approach to people where the likelihood of benefit is low and the likelihood of harm quite high, we're, we're not being patient-centered. So we know that it's a crisis in terms of family caregivers. There was a recent IOM report about the public health crisis of family caregivers. They provide about half a trillion dollars a year of out-of-pocket care, not to mention um, emotional, physical, spiritual suffering. The care they provide, we would require an RN to do most of the time, wound care, medication management, deciding what's a crisis and what's not. These people have no training. And they're not doing it for a stranger. They're doing it for someone they love, and it's terrifying. If you haven't read Carol Levine's paper in the New England Journal of Medicine called The Loneliness of the Long-Term Caregiver, look it up. Her husband had a closed head injury on some black ice and on the New York State Thruway, and she took care of him for over 10 years at home. And you know her description of, it's funny, but heartbreaking, the complete lack of support once he left the rehab facility. She was on her own. And you know she's a MacArthur genius and really knows her way around the healthcare system. Um, imagine what it's like for everybody else. So not only are these people basically transferring a generation's worth of wealth and reinforcing the cycle of poverty because of the family caregiving, they are at significantly increased risk of disease and death themselves, So, which is additional preventable cost not only in suffering, but also in dollars. And the leading cause of personal bankruptcy in the United States is health care. We are the only developed nation in which that is true. So I thought this was a really great study from Alex Smith at UCSF, because what he found, and this is using the Health and Retirement Survey, Medicare data, um, that disabling pain and symptoms, like Mr. B had, are extremely prevalent um, in the 50% in the, in the left-hand side of the circle. Um, and interestingly, most of it, like Mr. B, is due to arthritis, not cancer meds. So think about your COPD or CHF or end-stage renal disease patients. I bet they all have pain. Right? We don't use NSAIDs. We don't use acetaminophen. We just ignore it because it's not cancer. But it has real impact on function and quality of life. Um, so how many of you have read this? If you haven't, read it. 
um, Atul Gawande is a surgeon from Harvard, and he writes really well because he's very sort of disingenuous. He, he, he describes himself as an idiot and how he always did the wrong thing for his patients, and he doesn't know why. You know that this is probably not true, but he pulls you in. <laughs> he pulls you in. Um, his recent New Yorker piece of last week on basically primary care and how he didn't understand what it required um, is a tour de force on him saying, I didn't get this, but now I do. You know, um, Here's his opening line. I learned about a lot of things in medical school, but mortality wasn't one of them. And what he could have put in there is pain management wasn't one of them. Communication wasn't one of them. Managing people over time and across settings wasn't one of them. Harvard, you know. <laughs> Dartmouth, you know, <laughs> top of the heap. Um, so the New Yorker, of course, always gets it right. Um, this is my favorite part of the New Yorker, but I turn to first. Um, and this is a patient in a coffin with a doctor facing away from him. He should not be writing. He should have a computer. Um, if I was artistic, I would fix that. But the finalists are any stiffness, sorry about the weight, and any family history with death. So the New Yorker thinks this is funny, but actually this is true. Um, how many people end up in the ICU because the house staff team does not recognize that the person is actively dying because they haven't been taught to recognize it and they don't know what to do. Just as there are things you're supposed to do around labor and delivery, there are things you're supposed to do around the other transition. But you have to be taught. It's a skill set. It's not something you're born knowing. And so as people get more tachycardic and more delirious and their pressure goes down and they start chain stoking, off to the ICU, as exemplified here. Um, and why is this? So I had an experience with a patient that I wrote up in Health Affairs a couple years ago. This is the article. I don't want Jenny to think I'm abandoning her. You can look it up. Um, this was what an oncologist said to me on the phone when I asked him what he was hoping to accomplish with intrathecal chemotherapy, which is, for those of you who are not clinicians, putting a reservoir pump into the brain to directly administer chemotherapy into metastatic lesions in the brain. Um, and that's what he said. So the story is, this is Jenny. Um, she was diagnosed about six years before she died with stage four non-small cell lung cancer, and she had a great oncologist at one of New York's major health centers, um, and was an early recipient of one of those, I don't even know what you call them, <laughs> targeted therapies. Um, I did really well and continued working full-time as a psychotherapist. She ran three book groups, two of which read Greek and Latin in the original. She was one of those polymaths, um, remarkable human being. Around year five, um, treatments were being less effective. Mets were progressing. She was having more trouble concentrating. Um, she was weaker. She went to see her oncologist, and it was maybe year four, um, and asked him, what are we going to do when this stuff stops working? And he said, oh, I have more things we can try. At which point, she searched on Google for palliative care and found me at a different medical center and made an appointment. This woman showed up in my geriatrics practice. It's like totally out of place. Like, what is she doing here? You know? um, and she and her husband came in. And the, the, you know, I said, what brings you in to see me? She said, I want to know what it's like to die. I'm terrified of dying. And my oncologist will not talk to me about it. And being a clinical psychologist, she knew he couldn't talk to her about it, that it was his anxiety on the topic. So in less than two minutes, I said, well, the average person who's dying gets sleepier and sleepier, spends more and more time in bed, spends less and less time awake, has less and less interest in eating and drinking, eventually sinks into a coma. After a few days of that, their breathing becomes rapid, because they're getting acidotic. And then breathing becomes irregular with pauses. 
And during one, and those pauses can be as long as 30 seconds, 45 seconds, and then breathing stops again. But during one of those pauses, you will die. And if there are any symptoms, and much of the time there are not, but you know, pain, confusion, shortness of breath, we have very easy to administer medications that can be given to you at home. How long did that take me? 60 seconds? Okay. 10% of deaths are not that easy, but 90% are. Okay. Why don't medical students know this? Why can't oncologists answer that question? The relief on her face, I can still see it. Oh. Okay, so then we spent the next 25 minutes talking about her book groups. <laughs> that was me wanting to talk about that. Um, so subsequent to that, so for about 18 months or so, she and I and her oncologist worked together. I never met him. It was all email, mostly, text and phone. Um, but we developed a relationship. So there was a point at which I wanted to start her on psychostimulants for depression and fatigue. So I asked him permission before doing that. He was the treating physician. So we went back and forth that way on things that I wanted to try. And I never started anything without asking him first. So um, she got to a point where, as I said, her concentration was such that she couldn't remember what her clients were telling her. And she, her meds were expanding in her brain. She maxed out on steroids, maxed out on RT. So here's what he recommended, intrathecal chemotherapy. She goes home and calls me and said, what did I think? What do you think I thought? I had to control myself. <laughs> but I'm better at that in my old age than I used to be. So I said to her, I don't have much experience with this. I will call Dr. C and ask him what he's hoping. So I did. I called him. I said... Dr. C, Jenny called me today. She said you had recommended intrathecal chemotherapy. I really don't have much experience with that in this situation. What are you hoping we can accomplish with this? Now, how threatening of a, that's not very threatening, right? I didn't say, what are you thinking? Why would you recommend something like that? I don't agree with that. I deferred to his expertise, because I actually did think maybe there's something I don't know here. Maybe there's some data on this. Maybe he's had some positive experience with this. And he, without hesitating, said it won't help her. And then I really was struggling, because I'm on the phone, right? Like, and I have to figure out what to say. And I went through, there was a long pause while I struggled. And I then said, do you want me to encourage her to go ahead with it anyway? Because I'm a consultant, not the treating clinician. And then there was a really long pause. When, during which he became conscious of his own thinking, that he was offering this because it was the only way he could stay connected to her in his head, because he didn't have training in any other way to stay connected to her. If he wasn't giving her cancer treatment, he was abandoning her. Think about that. What has happened to our profession? It is not about technology. It's about relationship, right? And he deeply cared about Jenny and was very attached to her and didn't know how to accompany her through what happens to every single one of his patients. So what's my conclusion? What was the problem here? Lack of training. A failure of medical education. Really a profound failure. And what's the solution? Unfortunately, this is the solution because this is not easy to retrain the entire workforce on core skills that we didn't get when we should have. So this is Jenny and her husband George and her daughter Sarah on one of the many trips to Europe they were able to take thanks to this oncologist. Um, and this is Jenny about five days before she died, maybe a week before she died. I took this on my iPhone. Um, and on this, so I was taking, once she, at, after that, after he said, I don't want Jenny to think I'm abandoning her, 
he said, we're not going to do that. He became conscious that he was recommending something for reasons that didn't make sense. It had been unconscious before. But once he named it, he could make a different decision. And he referred her to hospice, and I took care of her at home with the hospice team. Um, and she died very peacefully at home. But at this visit, I asked her the question I always ask people at this stage of life, which is, how are you feeling inside yourself? Not, do you have pain? Are you sad? You know, but an open-ended question. A lot of my patients from Harlem say things like, I'm talking to God, or I'm talking to my relatives who went before. It's very, mostly spiritual. Uh, meaning sort of stuff. But what she said, and I expected her to say to me um, something about her mother from whom she was estranged and hadn't spoken to in 10 years, who was still alive. So I thought, here, I, I'm going to be the great palliative care doc who heals this relationship in the last week of life. <laughs> that was my arrogant fantasy. So what she said was, I can't understand why Dr. C hasn't called or visited in the last three months. She was devastated. She said, I thought he really cared about me. That's what she was thinking about in her last few days on the planet. So with her permission, I called him. And I said, you know, I went to, <laughs> I intervened. I went to see Jenny at home, and she'd really like to see you. And he said, why? There's nothing I can do for her. Angry, defensive. Fortunately, at this point, I had figured it out that he was grieving, and it, it was loss, and a sense of helplessness, and the sense that he had abandoned her. And I said, well, she, she wants to thank you. She's you know, very fond of you. She wants to thank you for all the great care you gave her, and she wants to say goodbye. And he went. She died the next day. Um, and I saw her at his funeral, at her, I saw him at her funeral the day later. And you know the coda, which just happened a few months ago, is that he's hiring a full palliative care team for his cancer center. I attribute that to Jenny. Um, so again, the New Yorker, there's no easy way I can tell you this, so I'm <laughs> sending you to someone who can. <laughs> we think this is a really good doctor, because at least he knows the patient needs the information. All right, so how can we help patients and families get what they want? We can retrain ourselves, and we can get money by partnering with anyone who's accepting financial risk whether it's an ACO, an MA plan, a Medicaid-managed care plan, a patient-centered medical home, a bundling strategy, an alternative payment model under MACRA. Those people have very strong quality and financial incentives to get Mr. B the kind of care he got. And because of that, they will spend money on it. And that is the only way to build community-based capacity, is through the shift to value. And this is just a small slice of the number of insurers that are actually paying for community-based palliative care. So if your local insurers are not there behind the curve, and we can connect them with their peers who are. Um, this is public awareness work that the American Cancer Society is doing. They have a whole series of ads, cancer, dancer, chemotherapy, mother. A third ad is a father with Holt picking up his four-year-old, radiation becomes dad, and then there's a child on a swing that says stage four and the ST gets cut out. And it's a very powerful Madison Avenue advertising firm, brilliant creatives, and the first line says palliative care sees the person beyond the cancer. It's an added layer of support. And we are finding more and more members of the public demanding this kind of care, which is another key way of making change. So I'm just going to close with this wonderful quote from Albert Einstein, mildly edited. Every day I remind myself that my inner and outer life are based on the labors of other men, added, and women, living and dead, and that I must exert myself in order to give in the same measure as I have received and I'm still receiving. This was such a great privilege to work in healthcare. Thank you all very much.